Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by TopTal, freelance development jobs for world-class engineers. This message is specifically for our listeners who prefer the freelance lifestyle. TopTal gives you the ability to work on freelance development jobs and projects with top clients who understand the value of elite engineering talent. Work with leading organizations at the rate you decide, be in control of your own schedule, and get plugged into support from a community of experts in the TopTal global network. TopTal handles all billing and invoicing, letting you fully focus on your engagements without negotiating terms with clients or bidding against other developers. TopTal is also 100% remote, which means you get to design your own lifestyle and choose projects that fit your career ambitions. If you're ready for an exciting remote work lifestyle, take the next step by joining TopTal at toptaljobs.com. Again, toptaljobs.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hey, hey, it's your JS Party friends. We are here to hang out and talk about JavaScript and the web. Jared and I am joined by <laughs> Suze, who's laughing at me. Say what's up. It's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. If I can start off the show with Suze laughing, it's going to be a good show. <laughs> Let's see if we can get Divya going. And Divya is also here. Hi, Divya. Say hello to the crowd. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. It's going very well. And we are here to talk about JavaScript and the web, celebrate such things. And we wanted to start off the party with a little bit of catch up, the new and noteworthy things in and around the JavaScript and web ecosystem. We have lots to talk about here. I'm gonna flip the script and actually start with the fun one. I started at first with the most interesting, but now I wanna start with the fun one. Let's go to the JS13K games winners have been announced. If you're unfamiliar with this game, it's an awesome competition where you're supposed to make a game in JavaScript and the website is down. <laughs> Are you serious? I have it up. Whoops, looks like something went wrong. It's a game in JavaScript in less than, was it 13 kilobytes of code, correct, Suze? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it up. I was, I was playing it earlier this morning. <laughs> well, you crashed them because their website is down. Sorry. 13kgames.com. I think, is the winner still live? Because we want to talk about the winner who has an awesome game, which I can no longer load, I don't believe. I'm going to have to like cash this tab for life now. <laughs> <laughs> Suze, why don't you take over? Tell us about the winner. It's a super cool game. I can't load it, so please do. Yeah, let's talk about it. I actually forget what it's called just because I'm actually on the, the game. It looks like it's like xx142-b2.exe. There you go. That is what I'm reading from the <laughs> title. I was really impressed with this immediately because the first thing that happens is you with this game is you get thrown into what looks like a text-based narrative kind of description, like opening scene you know, of a text-based narrative. And I remember thinking this has so much text, like this has to already eat into the budget of 
the 13 kilobytes that you have. I'm looking and I'm like, this is hundreds of bytes already. And I'm thinking maybe they do something tricky. Like, are they allowed to fetch swaths of text and then, you know, via Ajax and things like that. Um, so I was looking into it. And so I thought, whatever, I bet you the rest of the game is really small. I'll look into this later. And then, you know, you click continue and you just end up in this 3D game. And I'm like, are you serious right now? Like, how are they doing this? And so it's actually really cool. The, the idea is that you are like this little sort of pointy avatar and there's this concept of files and like I think you understand this a little better Jared but you're basically navigating through this sort of this 3D sort of like path and you have to use your previous ghosts of yourself ex you know expiring in order to sort of unlock gates and, and get through. Yes, exactly. So thanks to Pina Veras in the chat who got us the direct link to the winning game, which is still loading. And the entry text that you're talking about, I'll just read it because it's such a cool setup. The year is 2413. Humanity is enslaved by an alien race for more than two centuries already. You are an AI weaponized virus built to infiltrate the alien network and deactivate all power generators and weapon systems. The alien antivirus will detect and delete you after 13 seconds. But remember, a file is never really deleted. Use the execution backtrace from your previous attempts to break in and destroy the main memory core. So yeah, like you said, you basically move around and try to make it through certain gates. And the, the real gaming mechanism is the backspace button where you can start the level over and leave your previous trace there and use it to advance. They say backspace is kill dash nine, the executable. So <laughs> super nerdy, super cool. Built by Ben Clark and Salvatore Previti. So congrats to them on an awesome game. I'm amazed by how you can fit so much into 13K. Yeah, I'm looking through the source code and it's actually really nice to read, even though it's minified, like you can, it's still incredibly readable. Like I've looked at the source code for these kinds of things before, like JS, um, even JS1K and things like that. Um, and it's always just been completely illegible, but this one's really cool. So you can kind of see that in, in order to produce those large swaths of text at the beginning, they just created a string that had all the letters of the alphabet and like the first, you know, numerical numbers from zero to nine, like all like, you know, next to each other as one string. And then they just using character code at with the correct offset in the ASCII table in order to pull out the index of which one they need to express, you know, as the next text, which I thought was really awesome. Uh, and then you can actually see how they've set up a lot of the levels too. They have a bunch of mappings with like X's and Y's and things like that. So most of the actual source code is setting up all, I guess, like the rooms or the levels and just plotting them out. And I think that's really very cool, given that it feels like a very complex game. It does. It's clever in so many facets. Just the idea itself is clever. And then the execution, the, the interesting thing about the way that I believe it would work is because the idea in the game is that you're replaying the previous run through, there's so much recursive code or just executing back the previous functions that were called that you can squeeze a lot out of very little code and make it feel complex but really it's just rerunning something that's already run yeah it's super cool and yeah I, i'm just like kind of surprised at how readable it is they they wrote some really beautiful code like a lot of the verbs and the variable namings really help you understand how it works so like they didn't even have to do that and i i admire the fact that they were very thoughtful about how the code was presented as well so it was an absolute joy this morning to take a tour of so I've done one game jam in JavaScript and had a lot of fun doing it, but I've never done any code golf kind of competitions or even really tried coding golf. I know it, the, those kind of things began in the Perl world. That's, that's a tongue twister, Perl world. <laughs> 
have either of you done code golfs or trying to squeeze, you know, every single character down to as small as you could possibly do? I think I've seen the, um, like someone has done challenges within like 140 characters when Twitter used to be 140 characters. Mm -hmm. So you'd write a problem like FizzBuzz or something within that character limit as much as possible, which which is really fun to see. It's so unreadable, but it it works. I think that the the only stuff that I've really run into is just regular, like trying to write code for embedded devices, you are always resource constrained. And so I think the, the biggest golfing expedition I went on recently was how many frames of a GIF can I fit in memory for this device to receive over the internet? And then what is the best data structure to try and make the most of memory in? And so I was like, do I just use like a continuous, you know, stream of memory on the device, um, like contiguous, or do I use like linked lists in order to kind of use that fragmentation better? And so for me, it's always like, I need to fit more than six frames of this GIF on this device. How do I do that? So my stuff's more like memory golfing more than actual like file size golfing, I think. Yeah, the only bit that I've done, I've, I've read the code golfs, and I, I think there's like a Vim golf, which maybe I tried that, which was fun back in the day. Like, how, what are the fewest number of Vim commands that you can do to accomplish whatever task is out there, which is a great way to learn Vim if you're into that kind of a thing, is I used to do these code games where I would create uh, code, usually in Ruby or JavaScript, that represented a movie title. And so, you know, the, the goal is the person has to guess then what movie it represents. And so that's the only time I've really written code, not for readability or just to get the stinking thing to work, but to write it in such a way that the form, the form of the code is more important than mm-hmm. what it actually executes. It's definitely mind expanding. Okay, let's move on to a little bit less fun, but probably more impactful for your general JavaScript audience, those who are not making super tiny code games or want to play them is that top level await has landed in V8 and is in Babel and a bunch of other things. Miles Borens, friend of the show, I think he's been on one or two episodes of JS Party back in the day, writing about top level await on the V8 website. Uh, This enables developers to use the await keyword outside of async functions. So we've had async await for a while now, but you've never previously been able to use it uh, outside of a async function. Now you can use it right at the top level of a module and all sorts of interesting use cases fly out of that. Is this something that passed your guys' radar? What do you think about async await, top level await? I know that Miles, um, for the last few years, was actually trying to gather use cases for it um, because I think he he was one of the ones that initially suggested it or people were pushing back on async await because of that. Um, so he was trying to ask. Now maybe he, he asked me about it and I said, well, async await is really nice for, again, embedded, you know, I'm like a broken record about this topic, but <laughs> for for um, hardware-related things, it just makes the code so much more readable and maintainable, um, it, you know, to a point. And so for me, having to wrap things constantly um, just kind of made some of my code a little bit more convoluted. And like, it was just wrapping things for the sake of wrapping things just to get it to work, which feels like a code smell. Um mm-hmm. And so I like the idea of it. Um, I'm actually kind of fascinated about how they would have implemented that in the engine more than anything. But I I think that um, it's going to make my life easier. But other than that, like I'm not sort of pumped and shouting out into the streets about it. But I know that this was a very long game to sort of float this by the implementers, you know, of the spec. Yeah, 
I find it really annoying to always have to remember to reuse async when I await stuff. So for instance, if you're calling an API, you're always awaiting it. But then in order for that await to work, you have to wrap the entire function in an async. So I always get that console error saying like, hey, you don't have async. You can't use await without async, which is like half the time I'm like the async, it feels very redundant. It's almost like doing a return promise and doing a resolve when you just do want to do like promise.resolve instead. It's the same idea where I'm like, I'm just wrapping and adding a lot of boilerplate to code that doesn't have to use that particularly. And like specifically, a lot of times I, I write view. Um, and so I would have to create an entire function that's async, even though only one part of it uses a weight and the rest doesn't. Yeah, totally. So like in a method, it's like that method is async and it does like multiple things, but I need an, yeah. So it makes it much cleaner this way because there are a lot of times where you're just using like the assumption is that there is a promise. If you're making an API call or whatever, that's a promise. And so you can just await it. You don't have to async. Mm-hmm. I really like how you likened it to like some of the kind of boilerplate you have to do with promises where you just want to do the thing. Um, I've definitely felt the same sort of cringy feeling as I'm trying to put things together. And it's just like causing bloat. Well, yeah, especially because for a long time, whenever the uh, async await was starting to come into the fore, People are talking about how async away is way better than promises. And I was like, sure, it's great. But then because a lot of the times the corollary was talking about promise hell and how frustrating that is. Because with await, you can just basically create a const and then you would await. And then whenever that is ready, then you can use it and so on. But the thing is, this the argument around less boilerplate never made sense. Because I was like, okay, yeah async await is cleaner to read because you actually get a return value versus promises. But at the same time, you still have that boilerplate because in order to use await, you need async. And so you need to wrap everything constantly. And I think that was a part that not a lot of people talked about. It's kind of like the hand wavy, like, oh, it's fine. It's like better than what we had before. But that was the one annoyance I always had, just this constant having to remember. It's almost similar to... I was talking to someone about this with um, whenever you create a button, you have to always create cursor pointer as a CSS. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. It's like everyone needs that and you still have to write that boilerplate. <laughs> Thank you, CSS working group. Like, Is that a fact? I guess I've never yeah. noticed that. Yeah. I mean, every time you want a button, like you always want a pointer on it. Always. Sure. Yeah. But it doesn't work by default. So you have to add cursor pointer. So, the boilerplate is always button cursor pointer. <laughs> like whenever you pointer. Yeah. It's like one of the first lines you write because you just want a global for it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, throw that in your normalize or whatever. So a couple of things you, you mentioned the pushback, Suze, and Miles does talk about some of the uh, arguments about a weight, top level of weight being a foot gun, which I guess that's a term I hadn't really heard before, but something from which to shoot yourself in the foot with. Uh, a couple of things Rich Harris wrote about is that it could be a way to block execution. It could also block fetching resources. And the team has done, I think, a pretty good job of addressing these potential pitfalls and at least accounting for them. Now, I think you still probably can shoot yourself in the foot, but you can do that with most tools, especially uh, sharp ones. So uh, check out the blog post that Miles wrote for more information on that and get out there and try top level weight. Now, maybe you're thinking, I already have this. It's in my dev tools. Well, that was the only place it previously existed. It was in dev tools as, I guess, syntactic sugar or a nice way of using it without that 
extra anonymous function, but now you'll find it in the browsers outside of the dev tools. So there you have it, top level await. I think that footgun actually does make sense. But the issue is that these days you can do a while loop that runs forever and you can stuff it in an async function. And then that will actually stop it from blocking the whole execution main thread, which is really, really interesting. And so um, I'm just hoping that people remember that they still need to put that in there. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. talk about a different thing which is security related maybe not necessarily performance related but it's a cool new tool by Lyran or Liran Tall apologize if I pronounced your name wrong um, but he works for sneak and he's a, a sneaky security guy I think we were actually talking with him to bring him on JS party in a future episode and talk about security in JS and all of the different things that you have to think about to write secure JavaScript code he has a new tool called is website vulnerable, which uses uh, public zero day or, you know, the listing of the CVEs and known vulnerabilities in JavaScript libraries. It's a NPM module that you can, or a command line tool that you can install and then run NPX is website vulnerable, pass it a domain, start with your own, and then you can move on to other people's, uh, use it in a white hat way, please. And you can find known vulnerabilities in the front end JS libraries. So the example is run it against example.com and it will spit out basically this is running jQuery 2.1.4, which has two known vulnerabilities. It will link you to more information about those and you can run it against your websites and then fix all your known vulnerabilities. Now what would be cool is if you could fix your unknown vulnerabilities, but that's a whole nother step. The first thing I thought of when I read about this news was some people are going to feel kind of threatened just because not everyone sees public security conversations as a good thing. And so they're going to feel more, they're basically going to feel more vulnerable to attack from people and get afraid, but that's not the point of right. this. And then the second thing I thought of was to do with bug bounties. And I was like, oh, people have another tool for those who sort of try to participate in, in um, security like bounty programs to report vulnerabilities and things like that. It gives them another tool in their tool belt to try and try and find stuff when this the source code is not like of the website itself is not necessarily open source. It's kind of interesting actually. Sort of provides that weird middle ground. Yeah, because it's publicly available information, but it's not easily surfaceable. So I think probably you know script kiddies especially will have tools like these inside of tools like Metasploit, I believe. And so I think if you're already malicious and you're in that you're bent that way, you probably have some of this information or at least ways of getting at this information. This I believe is is its point is to, you know, point it at things that you care about and then, you know, fix them up. But yeah, any tool can be used both for good or evil. And so that's that therein lies the rub. How does this work with like the current NPM 
vulnerabilities thing. So like like if you have a pack, like if you have things on GitHub or if you use NPM, you can do like NPM audit and it shows you all of the security vulnerabilities in that. Is it similar or can't quite tell? Yeah, that's a great question. And somebody actually asked him that. The the thing that separates it from the NPM audit is this is running on a remote website. So this is not things that you're using internally or in your dev dependencies or anything that you would have private on your back end, right? So like any node modules you're using with Express or server side, it doesn't do those. It's just whatever you're shipping to your clients. And so it's basically just downloading whatever JavaScript your website sends on requests and then unpacking those and detecting and running, you know, fingerprinting tools to figure out what you're running against. And so it says, oh, you have jQuery 2.1.4. And then it basically takes that knowledge, runs it against the databases, probably does some sort of uh, remote lookup and says, well, what's this? What are the known vulnerabilities here and displays them to you? I'm running it on my website right now. Ooh, stay tuned. <laughs> We're going to find out. Is super vulnerable? I have probably less than two kilobytes of JavaScript on it. I tried to keep my website very deliberately tiny. And so, yeah, I'm actually excited to see zero total vulnerabilities. Yes! <laughs> and that's, that, folks, is how you fix up all your vulnerabilities. Just don't <laughs> write JavaScript. Just don't write any. That's right. I have a tiny amount of JavaScript that sort of like, I think there might be a small resized listener. I, I'm sort of using CSS Grid in a weird way to create a sort of a Pinterest style tile layout, but it's not quite perfect. And so I have to run some JavaScript just to like adjust the the heights and things. And that's that's pretty much the only JavaScript I think I have. Okay, well, I'm NPM installing as we speak and we'll, we'll uh, run it against changelog.com and see if we're quite as cool as Sue's. Spoiler alert, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I'm cheating. I don't think I'm using a single library. That's why, really. I mean, it's, oh, it's absolutely yeah. cheating. Yes, that's totally cheating. Because these, I think they're mostly checking known libraries, yes. right? Not yeah. your own. Yeah. They're not going to be checking for malpractices in your own code, I, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was the whole joke. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Good joke. It worked on me. Okay, next up, we have view three. So Vue-Next is the up-and-coming and and not-released version of the beloved Vue.js. And the team has been working on this in private, in a private repo, in the Vue-Next repo on GitHub, and they just recently open-sourced that repo. So it's not ready. I think it's pre-alpha, which alpha is pre-beta, so it's pretty pre at this point, pretty (laughs) pre. Uh, Don't use this. And it's not documented, and it's still very much in development, but it's out there, and you can read it, and you can check it out. And uh, that's exciting, because I didn't even know there was a Vue 3 coming, and now I can look at the source code. Yeah, there's a, it's, been, it's been coming for a while. Um, so it's interesting. So a lot of this, like with Vue 3, were all in RFCs. So they were talking about what was to come in order to get feedback from people who were using Vue and the community overall. So they had a lot of RFCs, like the composition function API one was the, was the huge controversial one because it uh-huh. introduced huge changes in the way you write uh, current view syntax. Um, and so that was a way for them to get like audience and like feedback, community feedback overall. Um, and then when they released Vue Next, actually there was a lot of people who were very angry about that just because... Um, when it was released, they were like, oh, it's all open source now. And then I think people were like, haha, TypeScript was open source from day one. So mm. this, is, this is not really open source. It's like you did things in private and then you showed it at the end. Which like kind of begs the question of what counts as open source. I think it's really unfair 
because um, there's a lot of a lot of flack for people who are just saying like basically like tearing the view team apart saying that they should have done this from the beginning and like why did they make this private um from the yeah and, and so on because i think the implementation the rfcs were public but how they were implementing things were still pretty private for a long time so it seems from like looking at github they essentially have a checklist of all the things that they're working on and so they check them as they're working as they finish them i think there's a couple more items on there not that many i think more than half is done so and they released it what a week ago from yep. the time of recording so yeah i think it's really great that they open sourced it and like as they're working through it i don't fault them for not open sourcing it from the start in a way like i think yeah as i said it's really unfair to say that to claim something is not open source when it wasn't open source in the beginning there are lots of projects that weren't open source in the beginning and then they just were like oh here you go here's the code that we worked on that we used mm-hmm. to get money for yeah the bizarre argument yeah i'm not a purist in any way like if you want to work in private and then open source something go for it I think maybe from the inside of the community, if there's like an outer circle and an inner circle in a community, which I don't, I'm not claiming that's the case with Vue, but I could understand where if I was on that somewhat outer circle, like I'm a casual contributor and a user, and then there's like this inner core and they're working on something in private, maybe from that perspective, I might be a little bit offended. Like, why couldn't I participate until now? But I don't know that, I don't believe that, I don't know if that's the case or believe that's the case necessarily with Vue.js. And I think from the outside perspective, I mean, the thing is pre-alpha. It's not like uh, they, they just dropped version three on everybody and said, here, have fun. It's still very much community oriented. Yeah. And even then, like, if you look at the trajectory of how things have been going, a lot of them, a lot of the views development has been through RFCs. So like granted, RFCs are pretty, they didn't do it in the beginning of view. So like view one and view two didn't do RFCs, but I think like they started doing RFCs very recently. And in, in a way, a lot of the process around like how exactly they came about with Vue 3 has been very public. So Evan has been talking about Vue 3 forever, like for a really long time uh, and just introducing the community to what is to come. So like TypeScript support, the function API and all of that kind of stuff. And so in a way, I think that that is like they might not be showing the code that they've been working on, but talking about it means that they are pretty public with what exactly is happening and what the thought process is in terms of what's to come. In a way, it still counts because they were like pretty open. They weren't like fully open, sure, but they were talking about it and trying to get feedback from everyone. And I think just looking at the way the RFC process worked compared to like other frameworks, they actually responded to every single person, the community, the core team members actually answered like if someone had a question on there in the RFC, they would answer them and they'd even like take, take conversations into separate channels depending on the depth of someone's question and if it was valid and so on. So yeah, I think that's like really cool. So as I said, a couple of times pre-alpha stage, but Divya, do you know, is there any sort of ETA or They anything? keep saying end of year, but I have no oh, idea. That's pretty soon. Yeah, end of year is pretty soon. So already like October. Maybe it's like a, it'll be a Christmas present. There you go. Like mm-hmm. end of year thing. I have no idea. Um, and I, I don't even think they've put a specific date on it. So perhaps the core team internally have a date that they haven't like publicly announced just because it's hard to hold people hold accountable when you don't know there's so many variables. So end of year is what they slated Vue 3 for, but there's right. a chance. Yeah. 
knows? Well, as the old joke goes, they said end of year, but they didn't say which year. <laughs> so lots of room that's for true. slippage that's there. True. Yeah, that's true. And as those of us who've done many estimates over the years, I will just say take the developer's estimated time and then triple it, and then you're going to be about there. You'll be right on task. So yeah. wait and see. Let's talk about Facebook, VR, AR, like like avatars. Divya, this was your bullet point in the list of news. So tell us what's interesting about this. Yeah, so this came up recently. So I'm not super into VR or AR. I just cursorily read stuff about it because it seems really cool and totally outside of the zone of knowledge that I have. But one of the problems I've heard from the VR and AR community has generally been how terrible the avatars are and how like they usually depict very like, there's not a lot of lifelike features to them. It's very like cartoony and silly looking. and so. Facebook has been working on like lifelike avatars just because a lot of the times when you work in VR, the idea of like VR and AR, I think they call it XR, it's like cross reality because it's like both like augmented and virtual reality. There weren't enough acronyms, so they had to add one more. Yeah, XR. So the idea of it is if you want to extend, or oh, I think it's extended reality. Yeah, extended reality. But the idea of that is if you want people to have this like augmented version of the current world, you need to implement a way of making it very much more real, real life like real life. And so they've been working on trying to create avatars that are more akin to what you see like IRL. Um, and they've been working on like this, I don't even know how long, but essentially with the, the Oculus now, it's able to capture uh, gestures and like user fe- like facial features. And so it can even mimic like how your face moves because in the past it would be pretty straight face like it would basically be your face but they wouldn't be able to capture tiny gestures that your face makes but i think with the new with like the way they've been working with codec avatars and like real life avatars it's able to capture movements facial movements which tend to be really minute which i think is like really remarkable i'm just waiting for the day that we have what they had on the starship enterprise with the holodeck and once we're there (laughs) I'm I'm ready for it. Until yeah. then, the Uncanny Valley appears to go on for, for days. <laughs> so very cool. Links to the research inside of that in the show notes. Facebook is building the future of connection with lifelike avatars. Very interesting. Yeah. It's kind of funny to see just like the, uh, they did like the keynote at F, is it F8? That's mm-hmm. the conference they do, right? Yeah. And it was just interesting to just watch because it seems so ridiculous. It's, they had this interview with like the one person talking to another person and asking them to do facial gestures. And then the other person's like, I can do a shocked face. And she does a shocked face. <laughs> like, I can also roll my tongue. And I was just like, what am I watching? <laughs> so here's a, here's a conspiracy theory. Maybe Zuckerberg is their beta test for their lifelike avatar. Because he seems to be almost Isn't human. he like straight faced? I feel like he has no facial <laughs> gestures. That's what I say. Remember the video when he was being interviewed by Congress or something? He was at a trial and yeah, he was drinking like the water. Totally. And everything was very robotic. Like he was like telling himself, drink water now because that's what humans do. So maybe he's just an avatar in progress. The grand plan. But it, nonetheless, it's actually really interesting. As much flack as we give for like all these companies like Facebook and Uber, they do a lot of interesting work. So like Uber is doing a lot of. Um, driverless car like driverless vehicle type things which is mm-hmm. super interesting and, and cool 
and like Facebook is doing this cool like XR work, which is interesting as well. I mean, if you just take aside the the ethics part of things, <laughs> you just throw away the ethics. Divya, everything is cool. <laughs> no, I mean like ethics is important. I'm just saying like right, right, right. If you look it's, at it's it not all bad. As is, the technology is really interesting, but like right. obviously there are some. I have a lot of qualms like around just like these particular because I'm like it's cool to have lifelike avatars but would I want to I still am like do I want augmented reality to be like part of my reality I don't know if if augmented reality is part of your reality does that make it become just reality again I don't know these are the deep questions that we have yeah it's uh it's like the metaverse and I'm just like I don't know if I'm ready for the metaverse This episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business, trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more, even us. Yes, we use them to power our search and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or head to algolia.com to learn more. We are back and we're here for pro tip time. This is where we share our pro tips, whether we're an actual pro or maybe not. But we have some life hacks. We got lessons learned from doing dumb things, whatever it happens to be. We'd like to share them with you. Suze, please share with us your pro tip. Yeah, I want to talk about hammer spoon, which is technically Lua, but I'm going to try to sort of say it's similar syntactically to JavaScript. <laughs> this, is, this is not Lua Party, Suze, but I'll allow I'm it. I'm sorry, but it's, like, <laughs> it's really good. So it is relevant to JavaScript too. Because, okay. So this is only for OS X. So I'm sorry to those out there who run Linux or Windows. This is specifically for OS X uh, or Mac OS. Um, Hammerspoon is a tool, tool for like scripting automation. Mm. So you can do certain tasks. Um, and, and so the reason why I bring this up is because you can write Apple scripts, or you can write sort of like JavaScript, which ends up just, I think, getting compiled back down to um, Apple script. But those APIs that the that the native operating system gives you, even even the JavaScript ones, are just not fantastic. I agree. And and so Hammerspoon is aiming to be an alternative to that. Uh, it is for the Lua scripting language, but if you do write JavaScript, you'll find it joyfully familiar. <laughs> it's just not quite the same. Um, and, and so Hammerspoon was introduced to me by a colleague when we were running a bunch of demo stations at a conference recently. And so he wrote all of these scripts to set up four different demos and we could just hit a shortcut and it would set everything up. And it reminded me very closely of my Twitch stream setup, which I've written in Apple script. Um, and it's just, this is so much better that I don't actually want to move all my stuff to it. Um, and so I do actually have, um, my my Apple script for my Twitch stream is open source. And what it does is it pops up a bunch of Chrome windows that have like things like, you know, lists of followers updating so that I can read them out. It opens like a specific Chrome window and a specific streaming profile for me. 
It also starts a bunch of programs and minimizes them, you know, and then it starts playing music that I have in the background of my stream and things like that. Um, so you can check that out. I, I actually will include the link in the show notes, but it just has these weird, like Apple script has these weird issues with it. I've actually had people open issues on my open sourced Apple script because they'll say, what is that funny, weird, a ASCII character on the end of every single line that you have? And is that a bug when you were like committing it? Or is it something weird with your computer? And I said, well, no, Apple script doesn't allow you to just do line breaks wherever you please. It will actually break. And so the way to do it is to use ASCII code 182. And that is the A with circumflex accent. And that's how you actually get your code to go to a new line. But though that character is visible in your Apple script. And so it's extremely silly. <laughs> I'm looking at um, it right now. It does look silly. It does look very silly. And it's only in certain locations where I'm trying to define an array or something like that. And you can't just have line breaks and arrays. So you end up with these like giant objects, you know, long lines, which is really hard to read and maintain. Um, and so Hammerspoon kind of takes a whole bunch of that stuff away. There's already pre-written spoons, they're called, which is sort of just like plugins that do very specific things. Um, and so it can even do just things like when your computer transitions between different Wi-Fi SSIDs, you could actually have something happen. And just like incredibly useful things to augment your everyday life on your computer with. And I want to get more into this stuff, not necessarily automation to be lazy, but just having little things happen that increase the quality of life on my computer every day that I've sort of like smoothed over because I've thought, oh, well, I just, I just, I'm not able to do that on the operating system. Yeah. I wonder if I can use this. I have one desire, which I have never quite filled, which I want a copy as Markdown system service. So mm. you basically take some HTML because we do a lot of stuff where we'll copy it and then we'll re you know, we're basically covering it as a piece of news. And so we want to like put the Markdown in there as like a block quote with Markdown. So I, I, I want copy as Markdown. You can find those like a Chrome extension. Again, I don't use Chrome or there's Safari things that don't really work, but I would love it to be a system service. And that led me to writing some Apple script that was just like, and then I was like, well, <laughs> I can use JavaScript now, right? And so I went and looked at the JavaScript APIs that Apple exposes and it's like, there be dragons. I don't really love what's going on there. And I was like, I don't really need this that bad. So I just stopped. And I wonder if I could ach achieve that with Hammerspoon maybe. Yeah, I know that there is some markdowny things that you can do in it. Um, cool. The API is just so incredibly extensive, and it it made our life so much easier with demo stations and automation. But it is really good for other little like conveniences like that. So did you, I? I didn't hear. Did you say you're going to rewrite this Twitch setup, or you did rewrite this Twitch setup, or you? Uh, I was aiming to, um, but because it's not platform, it's not cross platform. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what I should do about that but mostly because i also want to be able to run some very similar tasks on windows as well i see so it hasn't like solved all of my problems because i would have to use something like maybe auto hotkey or, or something like that on windows mm -hmm. so if anyone's got some good windows automation um suggestions otherwise i'm going to have to use powershell which is totally fine it's just that i don't feel as comfortable it doesn't feel as intuitive to me to use something like powershell very cool all right, Divya, you are up. Pro tip time. Cool. Um, mine is not a super technical pro tip, but I feel like I should stress this, that it's really important to find balance in your life. It's more like a pro tip for me, myself, because I find that 
oftentimes I get you get really wrapped up in work and you assume that work is always a priority and sure it is but I think it's also important to note that your own like health and well-being is also really important um I feel like it's such a cliche to say like self-care but um I like to think of it more as just like taking the time to about like basically refocus yourself so I've been using Headspace a lot just because it's a really great tool to take however much time you need like they have various time increments so you can do one minute if you don't have a lot of time and you're impatient is this a website is this a it's app? An app it's an app for like meditation okay um and it's a really it's also a great tool for like if you need a wind down before like going to bed they have like various sleep casts mm. they have like bedtime stories i know it sounds so childish but like it's it's kind of like a fun little like story I mean, people listen to stories because, like, This American Life and all of that. Stuff. Sure. Kind of similar, um, but it's, like, kind of just to take your mind off of the things that you're doing during the day and to just wind down, which I think is really important because, yeah, like, taking rest and just resetting is useful to, like, being effective in your work and so on. I agree with this, and I also use Headspace um, and... If you work in the U.S. and you have like health benefit offerings, sometimes you are actually able to expense the subscription to Headspace as well, which is something to look into. In my last two jobs, including my current job, I'm able to actually expense things like Headspace, which is really cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I find that sometimes I accidentally get really pumped for something just before bed, which sucks. <laughs> so last night I was looking something up and then I realized all of a sudden I could achieve something way easier in a technical sense for a project and then I was like oh I just want to do that now and then I obviously had to go to bed and so I usually use headspace and one of the bedtime ones to just let go of that so that I'm not spinning all night saying and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to write it in this way and then I'm going to like glue this piece together and like otherwise I just don't sleep and then of course I get up the next day and I'm so ineffective and tired that I don't end up being able to do the thing. I'm with you. And as Adivia, you found out a couple of weeks back on our learning lessons episode that I listened to podcasts before yeah. bed or as I trail off to sleep. Mm. And um, one thing I try to do with those is I can't listen. I don't do that to learn as much, although you do end up learning on accident. But I'll try to listen to ones that I don't really care about all that much or that I'm not like invested in the like I'm not trying to like dig everything out like the stories or the or people play games, you know, people hanging out or like c comedy podcasts where I don't really care that much what they're saying. And that helps me just turn my brain off, listen to somebody else's brain for a minute until I can actually fall asleep. But I've never heard of this sleep casts. Did you say sleep casts? Yeah, it's part of like, I think it's part of the Headspace app. So Headspace has various um, tracks and I think sleep cast is part of that. There's a track for it. So it's, technically this idea of like it's meant for nighttime use and so you would go to it and like, and then they also have like various sounds so you can also if you need the sound of rain or like right a, ra a rainforest or something they also have sound bites that you can use if that helps as well that, that could be useful speaking of my favorite podcast to fall asleep to lately has been bilbcast that's b-i-l-b and it is Bilbo the cat purring for an hour. Oh, that's adorable. That's so cute. It's just a cat purring. Yes. And 
He's oh sitting God. in his owner's lap, and as sometimes she'll like change the way she's, you know, like giving him attention, mm-hmm. and then he'll just start purring in a different way because he gets like super into it, and like maybe she's like scratching him behind the ears or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and it's wow. very, very cute. He's a very. You should follow him on Twitter too. He's a great cat. That Love is it. Amazing. How about you, Jared? Yeah. So for my pro tip, this is something I wanted to talk about during our communication episode that we did a few weeks back, but we just never quite got around to it. And I thought I would throw it in here as a bit of a follow-up for communication skills. We talked about issues. We talked about PRs. We talked about how to convince people of things and talk to users and whatnot. One thing we didn't address was just email in general and how to write effective emails and how to get back what you're looking for. There is a fellow named Lazarus Lazaridis. Sorry, Laz. I messed up your last name there. A little alliteration and some rhyming. But uh, he wrote a, a post called Composing Better Emails specifically for developers, like how to quickly address what you're communicating, how to avoid misunderstandings, how to save time with your email, because we can all waste tons of time in email, both as a recipient and then as like a sender. Like you send an email and you're like, well, that email sucked because the person didn't understand me or they didn't answer the question. Uh, so he has a bunch of really cool tips. And the pro tip for me, which I've just started to do in the last couple of years and have found to be the one small thing that I think has affected my emails for the better the most, uh, probably in my life, is if you have multiple things that you're asking for, lots of times you have a few things that you're saying, as email tends to be a little bit longer form than a text or a, or a Slack or what have you. Let's say you have three things that you're asking of the, of the recipient of the email. It's incredibly effective. I would love to have stats on this if you number the things. And it's like on a small thing. But if I have three things to ask, I will just put number one, here's, here's, my, here's my question. Number two, here's my question. Number three, here's my question. What happens oftentimes, maybe you all have experienced this, is if you don't number them or make them explicit and you do ask a few things, maybe even you finish it with like question, a sentence that's a question, a sentence, yeah, like three questions at the end, is people will either answer the first one and that's it. Mm-hmm. Or they'll answer the last thing you said, and that's it. Or sometimes they're really bad. They don't answer anything that you're asking of them. Like, you can't really <laughs> fix that. I've found so many more people will answer all you know N questions that I have or address all N things that I say if I just number them out explicitly. It's like it's just a visual cue. And I receiving as well, I appreciate it. I'm like, okay, here's your four answers. One, two, three, four for the four questions. So that's a little bit of a pro tip. Also, I'll link up his post, Composing Better Emails, in the show notes. It's worth a read. He's got a lot of good ideas as well. I could do with this. I'm I'm definitely that person who is guilty of, I'll read an email from start to finish, and then I might reply to it, you know, half an hour later yeah. because I got distracted by something. And then I just won't see all of the requests in there. And then I'll be pegging on extra emails saying, oh, and by the way, to answer your other question. Yeah. Yeah. Very annoying. Also, it's hard to like, often when I, whenever I have to ask someone a question, I want to give context to that question. And then the question gets buried in that paragraph. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I've been doing that a lot lately too. Yeah. Because you're like, it's kind of rude to just start with the question. But at the same time, (laughs) I'm like, if you started with it, they would be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I've started bolding stuff, which I feel is the more crass version of numbering things. Yeah. I need to stop bolding things and actually just lay out my emails properly. I mean, it's funny because I know lawyers do that a lot. They'll be like, Blah, 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 blah. And please remember to do this thing. 
yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. And I used to get ones from a certain attorney, like highlighted in bright yellow. <laughs> Oh, God. In in all caps, and I felt like they were yelling at me for being an incompetent um, <laughs> client. Yeah. I think we all tend to use bolding. Rebecca in the chat says uh, they also use bolding for most relevant bits. It's uh, You got to use bolds like you use salt on your meal, right? Like sparingly <laughs> too much and you just ruin it. Like if everything's bold, nothing is bold. Am I wrong? I yeah. It really improve the taste, but sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, you've never tasted one of my emails. They are tasty <laughs> morsels. Short and salty. Short and salty. <laughs> so uh, there you have it, our pro tips. Any uh, curious from you two? Any other tips on email specifically besides the numbering bit that you found to be helpful for folks? Put you on the spot. I think. I think the other thing that gets often forgotten is like the importance of the subject as well, and like crafting the proper subject. Which is really hard because sometimes, sometimes if I have a question that I want answered, I put the question in the subject, which right. like, I don't know if that's effective because sometimes I don't want it to be too direct. Like if I ask the question and I don't expect them to say yes, I'll be like, if they see the question, they'll say no and they won't even bother reading the email. Mm. So I try to create a hook, a subject that like gives enough information, but not in not enough that they have to Ooh. read the email. Ooh. Um, so it's crafty. a kid. This is akin to clickbait, right? I mean, yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really is. It's kind of the same concepts of like a title of a blog post. It's like, how do I make it intriguing, but also not like giving away the content? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, so like tough. being mysterious, but like not, I don't know. I'm not that creative. Although like one thing that my, a lot of people do in my, at my new place of employment is instead of, because we use G Suite. So instead of highlighting a word and then linking it to something, um, and then you have these paragraphs where there's like all of these kind of distractions where you're like, oh, there's a link there and there's a link there and maybe I should read this and come back to the email. Like you write the entire email and then you just do the markdown style footnoting where you'll just have like, you know, zero in like square braces straight after like something that you're mentioning, like a document. And then you just kind of number them all. And then right at the bottom of the email after signing off, you just like list them one underneath each other with those footnote numbers. And I've found that so helpful, especially because I'm new. I'm just like, I have to read all the documents and I have to like find out all these things. But instead, I'll read the email all the way through and I'll be like, yep, I'm going to look at them once I've actually got the gist of what's going on. I don't know. It's It just kind of shortcuts my brain away from wanting to click on all the links as I'm going along. Okay. That's interesting. That is interesting. So uh, Gerhard Lazou, who's a changelog friend who's done a lot of our uh, infrastructure work and has written some blog posts and whatnot, he wrote this big, long blog post about the new infrastructure uh, a while back. And he put all of the relevant links at the very bottom in the exact same style that you are saying. And I went back and I was like, dude, you got to inline those because nobody wants to wait till the end. <laughs> He's like, he goes, am I the only one who doesn't like to be distracted in the middle of a sentence by a link? And then I'm going to click on it. I'm going to go somewhere else and never come back. And I'm like, yes, you're literally the only one. You have to put those in line. And now I can say, no, there's two people because Suze loves it, especially in the context <laughs> of email. So, Yeah, I mean, I'm the person that has, I have a, a browser extension to stop and hide GIFs because I can't read articles while there are GIFs playing. Oh, like, I just yeah. stay off. BuzzFeed.com is not my website. I just don't go on it because that's just literally what it is. But I just cannot deal with it. And that's the main reason why I use an ad blocker too, because so many ads of videos and all sorts of things, I literally can't concentrate on the text. 
Well, Suze, Divya, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Everybody listening live and in the chats, thanks for hanging out with us while we party. For those listening on the produced version, hey, come hang out 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. We threw a JS party each and every week. We'd love to have you participating. Did you know we take requests as well? If you have a show topic, a guest, or even specific hosts, you like, I would like to see this person talk to that person about this thing. Head to changelog.com slash request, and you can pick JS Party from the dropdown and let us know what you would like to hear on this show. We want to be uh, by and for the community because that makes everything more awesome and more fun. So let us know what you'd like to hear. That way we don't have to guess what you'd like to hear. It'd be awesome. That's our show for this week. You don't have to stay here, but you can't go home. That's not how you say it. (laughs) You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. There we go. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We just have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Y'all ready for this? One sec, one sec. I'm trying to find this ASCII character. It's, it's very uh, important for the show. 63. 182. Oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's relevant. It's 100% relevant, I promise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hold on a second. I'm trying to find this ASCII character. Things Suze says. Uh, how do you say Things Suze says? That's a tongue twister too. Things mm-hmm. that could be a website. Things says.com. Your live streamers would love it. Hold on, I'm trying to find this ASCII character. Okay. Pro tips. <laughs>